I'm Jeremy Leggett. I'm founder and chairman of Solar Century, a solar energy company internationally but based in Britain, and founder and chairman of SolarAid, African solar lighting charity funded with 5% of Solar Century's profits. And we have a retail brand, Sunny Money, which is the biggest seller of solar lanterns in Africa at the moment. So you've just published a book called The Energy of Nations. Uh, could you just tell people in a nutshell what uh, what they might expect to find in there? I worry that the energy industry is in the process of repeating systemically the mistakes of the financial sector and on multiple fronts. I talk in the book about five big systemic risks that I think they're running and the risks that they're taking get worse and worse as time goes by. Um, and I tell the story linearly from 2004 when the oil price started to go up. I, I tell it as a narrative of these five risks and sort of intercut uh, diary extracts um, from my life as I've seen this risk taking grow and grow to try and make the point about the five risks as um, as a narrative really as a story a true story and it's really i have to say it's like it's it's really compelling it reads like a thriller it's been so interesting to sort of see you know that was about the time i first got interested in in peak oil and to see that sort of what's happened since laid out as such a page turning uh, sort of uh, thrilling uh, narrative was really interesting and it struck me that one of the things that was that was quite difficult in the early days of of peak oil was to make those arguments that peak oil and climate change needed to be looked at as overlapping issues you had the peak oil people and the climate change people and the climate change people didn't want to talk about peak oil because it complicated things and the climate peak oil people often were just focused on how to get new sources of, of oil and over time, that has kind of they've, those communities have come together, partly through your work and, and other people's. But it felt like uh, that maybe recently that's become a harder narrative to hold together with people saying, "Well, there's more than enough fossil fuels to finish the climate off." But what you've done is 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 very skillfully bring those two issues back together again. How do you see the overlap, the relationship between those two issues? No matter who's right, uh, peak oil debate there has always been easily enough oil and gas uh, to combine with coal to wreck the climate and um, bring down civilization. I mean, I, I don't think there's any dispute about that in a world where we're at 420 parts per million uh, carbon dioxide equivalent already. The, the, the thing that's so striking, even for me, writing the book was how in just a few years the um, dominant narrative, the widely accepted narrative, has gone from one of real constraint on oil supply, um, indeed transparent, palpable alarm by the International Energy Agency, for example, right through to 2011. And now we're in some cornucopian paradise of, um, for the fossil fuel heads, of um, America heading towards Saudi America status, um, you know, energy independence, all the rest of it. This has happened on the basis of evidence that is really flimsy, but has been hyped to high heaven by, um, I think, a very desperate incumbency locked into a sort of almost religious uh, 
enculturated belief system which um, is behaving very dangerously, very dangerously indeed. And you, you tell one of the things that's, that's really kind of compelling is that, is the, as you say, the extracts from your diary through that time of the different meetings and events. And, uh, and it really leaves the reader scratching their head at, at the, uh, the sort of detachment from reality and the, the strange kind of bubble that many of the people who work as executives in the energy industry and in the finance industry uh, that, that they operate in. Um, what, where does that come from, do you think? What is it? Why, why, where does that kind of stubbornness and sort of uh, uh, cultural oddness come from? Well, it's, it's not so surprising when you look at what the neuroscientists are discovering about how our brains work, how we, how we think individually and collectively. And as I describe in the book, that's something I didn't know about until, you know, the, the, the course of my work. I went to a couple of seminars on, on this wave of discoveries in neuroscience. So the neuroscientists tell us that their research shows that we're, we're individually and collectively very prone to lock into belief systems easily and quickly and, and then when we do we defend them we, we don't like to be presented with any kind of rational evidence that we're wrong in that set of beliefs we have a, a sort of incumbency effect we prefer to believe in the potency of things and systems that we have as opposed to other alternatives that might be rationally much more um, appropriate and it doesn't surprise the uh, anthropologists see that because when they look at the history of civilizations and how civilizations have failed you know they see time and time again this sort of belief in myths and magic that um, emerges uh, towards the end as civilizations are about to go under and um, you know the, the parallels are very clear here they, they see the, the power of the markets all the things that a modern, a modern capitalist is supposed to believe in the market forces and um, the validity of basing an economic system on the combustion of hydrocarbons that you know undermine your climate and therefore your ability to even continue with um, feeding yourself and and providing yourself with with clean water, so I try and, and convey that part of the, the the story as well. It's not all bleak because I think you know the neuroscientists also tell us that we have this great um, yearning as human beings for community and all the rest of it, and individualistic or selfish as perhaps you know people on the right of the political spectrum constantly try and persuade us that we are so that all points towards the possibility of a road to renaissance and that's why i titled the book the energy of nations risk blindness and the road to renaissance and i talk about the importance of things like the transition movement in um the building blocks for this road to renaissance. You say there will probably be only one shot at capitalizing a 21st century energy infrastructure. And, and you also talk about how uh, the, U the UK government uh, has been busy plotting gas nirvana with the, with the oil industry. 
uh, and the UK appears to be set on becoming a gas hub through through exploiting shale gas, but also presumably since the book was published, also the public announcement of wanting to also become a nuclear uh, hub. Have have the decisions, do you think, been made already about where that energy infrastructure of the 21st century, what that's going to look like, or is there still a, ch- a time and an opportunity to shape it? Yes, there's definitely time and opportunity, and they may think that, They've made the the decisions, but you know, if you look at the extent to which the backing of shale is based on transparent myths, for anyone who's prepared to dig below the, the surface, um, just the notion that the United Kingdom, rural Britain, can be peppered with the kind of density of fracked wells that they've had in the productive areas of Texas, Pennsylvania, and North Dakota. It's laughable when you look at the, the public opposition, even to the first single well, it wasn't even a fracked well in Sussex. We're not going to tolerate it, the British people. Uh, that's the first thing that is bewildering. The, the second thing is, of course, the mounting evidence that the whole North American shale gas boom story is actually a, yet another one of these bubbles that we're terribly good at um, inflating and that people are losing so much money because of the low gas price that they're not going to be able to service the vast amount of debt that they're accru- that they're borrowing from from Wall Street and so that whole system will come off the rails even in America um and so you know there the are real questions as to whether um the Osborneite you know um i suppose and also Cameron now gas tendency are going to get away with their, 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 their ludicrous plans. As for nuclear, well, you know, they've made a crazy decision to commit vast numbers of billions of um, our money off in, far into the future on a French and Chinese nuclear power plant on the coast of Somerset. But the first thing they have to do is get state aid's permission from the European Union to do that. Um, and that decision won't be uh, taken for, for, for quite a while. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see that they're definitely going to be able to get away with even that one white elephant nuclear power plant, much less the, the crazy nuclear renaissance that they're, that they're plotting. Meanwhile, you know, the energy industry is a civil war zone, and that includes in the Conservative Party, because... Not everyone is lined up behind this craziness. Uh, there are some conservatives who really do believe in the green industrial revolution and the um, localization of power to the people and all the kinds of things that you know um, the transition movement thinks about. So that element of the civil war can, will continue to play on. Even within the big energy companies, you've got people who just know in their hearts that the status quo business models are flawed and probably dying in the water for the big utilities and uh, are thinking of alternative um, localized people power type of alternative models. Um, And then when you look at the growth, what's growing? Uh, what's growing is renewables, and uh, in Europe for the last three years, we've put in more renewables than we have 
fossil fuel and nuclear, more money is going into renewables than is going into fossil fuel and nuclear combined, despite all the um, wrecking tactics deployed by the energy incumbency. So there are reasons to be cheerful, Rob. And one of those uh, that comes through in the book repeatedly is, is Germany and the, and the kind of national scale uh, energy vendor that, that, that they're doing there. What can we learn from, from Germany, do you think, in terms of practicalities and in terms of ambition? Well, um, I think that it, it's, it's altogether very encouraging indeed. And we, we uh, can learn that it's possible to renewably power a modern economy like Germany's 100% with renewables and do it much quicker than, than people anticipate. Uh, we, can, we can also see that the ownership structures can change radically so that people power comes into the mainstream. Um, and as you know, more than half the renewable assets in Germany are owned by people, owned by people and communities, and uh, and that's not always just small energy co-ops of the kind that are be, being set up by the by the multiple hundreds, but whole cities now talking about taking their own power into their own hands. Even Berlin, with um, a membership movement to to take control of the way that that energy is created in the city. So Germany is vital in the whole uh, narrative going forward. You can see the big energy utilities dying, basically, in Germany. They, the top 20 European energy utilities were worth a trillion euros in 2008. Now they're worth half a trillion euros. Um, and that's simply because of the way wind and solar particularly, but other renewables have driven down the wholesale price of power and literally taken power out of the monopoly hands of the utilities. It's very exciting. You talk in the book about, um, about for example, how Shell uh, have meetings with ministers and, and you reflect on what it would be like if actually the, uh, the renewable sector had, had even half of the access to ministers and the ability to organise meetings with them uh, that the renewable sector has. Is there any way to break that, do you think? Or, or you know, what, how, how, is there any way of turning that around? It, it's a very potent force and a very um, malign um, way of operating. So it, it will be difficult. And I think one of the things I've learned during the adventures that I describe in the book is that that most of these big companies are incapable of change and they have to be defeated rather than changed and that's that's something that I think is a little sobering some of them will change at the margins and ultimately one or, one or two may may change wholesale but you see the way they dig in the way they defend to the death in the face of all the evidence to the contrary, you know, BP pulling out of solar energy just at the time that the system price falls to the point where we're near to being competitive in multiple markets. They pull out completely and retreat into, you know, get unconventional gas and, and all the rest of it. This is not a company that is going to change. It's a company that will have to be ultimately driven out of business, I think. Shell are pretty much in the same category, perhaps not quite so badly. 
Um, the, the big energy utilities, EDF, you can't see, you, you don't get any sense that they're capable of changing culturally. Others may be different. RWE are um, clearly going through some kind of soul searching um, at the moment and you know may make it through in the way that IBM um, did manage to change as micro as mainframe computers were were replaced by microcomputers. But ultimately, I mean, the whole fabric of society is going to be changed. I think uh, on the road to Renaissance by the continuing emergence of people power and people and communities taking control of their own energy, taking control of their own finance. That's going to be very important as well with the growth of crowdfunding, peer-to-peer -peer lending, um, green bonds, retail bonds, and all the rest of this kind of thing, which even the assistant um, director general of the, of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, has said is showing signs of becoming such a trend, such a potential mega trend, that it could disenfranchise the main banks, the high street banks, in the way that I think some of these trends in renewable energy are going to disenfranchise uh, the energy incumbency. Is there any merit at all, do you think, to that argument that, that, that um, shale gas can be a bridge fuel? That it, that, that, it, that it displaces coal, so therefore it has a role as a bridge fuel, or, or not? If people were capable of being um, collectively rational, um, clearly we can't bring in renewables overnight. We know how fast we have to bring them in in order to, you know, stay below 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide equivalent and ideally get even lower than that to have a chance of defeating climate change. Uh, but we can't do that overnight, no matter how fast we um, we mobilize. So if you can contain the leaks, uh, gas actually works very well, for example, with solar um, as, a, as a combined heat and electricity technology and combined heat and power with low emissions, relatively low emissions. The problem, as I say in the book, is that so much of the gas industry has retreated from this mantra that gas is a bridge to the low carbon future and are now um, pushing this ludicrous myth that gas actually is the bridge to the gas powered future, that un unconventional gas is the, is the route to the un unconventional gas powered future. Um, and of course they deploy their, their lobbyists and their wrecking tactics to try and, and stall renewables and, and indeed kill renewables. And since I finished writing the book, um, 10 of Europe's biggest utilities have rocked up in Brussels and told uh, the European Commission um, and in Strasbourg, the European Parliament, that what they want is all subsidies for renewables stopped, essentially a cap put on renewables, and gas opened up as the main uh, route to um, powering Europe and also somehow, they say, fighting climate change. One of the things that you did before, um, before this book came out was the Carbon Tracker uh, report about the carbon bubble and, and arguing that, <clears throat> that four-fifths of the reserves that we know exist need to stay in the ground. Uh, and that that could lead to a big financial bubble. Could you just say a little bit about that and maybe about how that report has been received and any impact it may have had? 
yeah, Carbon Tracker is a little financial think tank that I have the privilege of chairing and being able to help uh, to the to the extent that I can. Um, and the folk behind it, Mark Campanelli and others, have have really done something amazing. Uh, I, I think I've never seen an argument get more traction with um, the policy world or the financial world. I've never seen an argument upset and discomfort the energy incumbency um, as much as this one does. Markets, it's not even recognized at the first level anywhere in the accounting of companies, on their balance sheets. Um, and what Carbon Tracker is saying is let's start recognizing the risk. And, and, and of course, as soon as the language is put like that in the in the terms of the capital markets, it's very difficult for the regulators and the people who should reg recognize the risk, like the accountants and the auditors and the actuaries and all these folk right across the financial chain, um, to say, no, we're not going to recognize the risk. So some of them are in their different ways. And some of the financial institutions have already started pulling large sums of investment out of fossil fuels as a result of this whole risk dialogue. It's terrifically exciting. And um, I actually think that, that this, could be, this could be the argument that breaks the logjam on climate change. I'm that optimistic about it. Well, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me reading it was that although there are those huge amounts of carbon, one of the things that, 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 it, that I couldn't find in, in the Carbon Tracker report was a, uh, a look at in terms of energy return on investment or whether actually it would even be economically feasible even if the people wanted to, to extract and burn all of that carbon. Uh, is there a sense that actually, you know, that, that all of that carbon would be burned, or you know, uh, the, what what are the economics that underpin that? Well, the assumption is every time any company brings resources to the market in an initial public offering and asks for money to turn them into reserves, the assumption is that of course all of it can be burned without constraint. You and I know that ultimately there are going to be profound energy return on investment implications. But that's the next level of argumentation, if you like. I mean, it's difficult enough to um, get traction with these folk just on the basic carbon arithmetic arguments without, um, without to energy return on investment, dysfunctional as that situation is. So, yeah. I think you know if we can if we can continue to make as much headway as we are on simple carbon logic, carbon arithmetic, um, carbon fuel asset stranding risk arguments, then maybe there's a bridge there to um, allow the very small number of brilliant folks who are working on energy return on investment to get their voices heard too. You say at one point, uh, I'm now convinced that capitalism as we know it is torpedoing our prosperity, killing our economies, threatening our children with an unlivable world. It needs to be re-engineered root and branch. So does capitalism still have a place? Uh, what would a re-engineered capitalism look like? And what does that mean for uh, for economic growth? Well, it, it depends on your definition of capitalism. Economic growth, as it's currently measured, I think its days are, its days are over. And increasingly, this isn't. It, it used to be the, the mantras of the um, the lunatic the, the, the people classified as the lunatic fringe, but not anymore. You can read this kind of thinking in the commentary in the Financial Times. 
um, you know, on a road, on a wor- in a world with a global economy on route six degrees, how how can such a system be viewed as um, as sane anymore, much less survivable? So yeah, I think the more of us who start using this language of a new type of capitalism, others won't call it capitalism at all, of course, but uh, a new type of capitalism. Certainly, I mean, my point in the book is modern capitalism, a form of capitalism that's evolved, you know, in the last few decades is basically suicidally dysfunctional and we have to turn our backs on it and and introduce an alternative set of systems. And that's what I think we have the opportunity to do um, on the road in building the road to Renaissance. And if it, and it reads like like you you see that as being uh, that as lying in a combination of of large and small things. You talk about a localization mega trend, uh, and the, the the whole thing of peer to peer lending and community led initiatives like Transition and others needs to sit alongside uh, the big um, the bigger things as well in terms of investment and and, and how, how do you see those two things sitting alongside each other? Yeah, I think I think that's right. The um, the electricity grid might be a very good example of how this will play out. Right now, very few people question the assumption that we need to keep feeding this monster of a national electricity grid system, which is massively capital intensive, very difficult to figure out a way which in which that could be upgraded and you know made fit for purpose decades into the future using you know new kinds of financing and the rest of it but i think inevitably what's going to happen whether people like it or not is that communities towns individual houses are going to get themselves off that grid and the march of technology is going to help them um, and people and communities are, are going to become increasingly self-sufficient so when you do that you know where's the role for the national electricity grid at a certain point where's the role for a giant company like national grid um, aren't we going to be just devolving down into community um, based companies and co-ops um, and all the rest of it I think it's it, it, it's, an, it's an exciting vision because you get all sorts of spin-off benefits from a transition of, of that kind but nobody can, I mean, I don't have a blueprint template of how we get from A to B, the globalized national, international infrastructure world to the localized um, world. I, I, I think that's, that's a work in progress that we're all going to have to be active players in um, the architecture of. And in, in, in the national kind of debates and certainly in the kind of popular media at the moment, a lot of the stuff around energy seems to all be falling, becoming a sort of increasingly sort of selfish perspective of, uh, of, of well, I don't care about green, green energy taxes because I want my bills to be cheaper. And it's all about, like it is with food, it's all about cheap, cheap, cheap. How do we, how do we make energy as cheap as possible? And the, 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 the narrative that, that, that comes through very strongly in the book is about how a renewable energy revolution could meet all of our needs much better. We could have cheaper energy. We could have, you know, a healthier world. You know, you paint that picture very powerfully. But that doesn't seem to be yet coming through 
in the kind of national debates, which seem to be more, all focused on how do we get rid of all these annoying windmills and green pesky green taxes that push my bills up. Um, why, why is that? Is, is that voice not coming through just because of powerful lobbying at certain levels, or why, why do you think this this message still isn't being heard? And how can we make it more heard? Yeah, because the incumbency the incumbency has got a nice little scam going, hasn't it? You know, they can pretend to be cheap uh, by using an accounting system that takes their subsidies off the balance sheet. So they, they get tax breaks and they get their subsidies in different ways from feed-in tariffs. But all forms of energy have subsidy, as those of us who pay attention to the game know. Uh, and so the, the incumbency sits there righteously talking about the cost of, of green taxes and all the rest of it. And it's, it, it's a desperately unfair tactic. Um, and, you know, the other issue that they don't talk about is the third dimension, time going forward. Our costs and prices are coming down um, for the most part all the time, whereas theirs are going up and up. Um, and even where there aren't, where they aren't, in the case of the U.S. shale gas, you know, they're dysfunctionally low. So they're so low that the marginal cost of drilling these fracked shale wells is so high that the companies are being driven slowly towards bankruptcy. As Art Berman calls it, the U.S. gas industry is um, it, it is an industry engaged in a, in a suicide pact, as things stand. So, uh, you know, slowly these things will become clear to people. You, you know, people are so busy, they don't have time to look below the mantras. And very often it's easy to accept these mantras. But there's so much fibbing going on and myth spinning going on as a result of the... Um, poisoned belief system of the energy incumbency. And my last question was, the story that really comes through in the book, as much as anything, is, is, is your own personal story. Of, uh, and, and it's fascinating because it sort of starts around the time I first found out about all of this stuff. And it's your own story of going in and out of endless, vastly frustrating meetings and meeting people whose heads are deeply in the sand and sort of you know, half the stories are kind of you just banging your head against a brick wall, it feels like. Um, how, how through all of that have, do you, have you sustained yourself? Where, where has the sort of, where, where's the motivation to get up the morning after those dreadful meetings come from? You know, there are so many grains of hope scattered around everywhere and the, one of the beauties of working um, on the front lines of the solar industry is that you, you know you see that seeing is believing effect time and time again um, because every person who gets a solar roof and sees that this simple technology works works really well um, that, that's a joy to behold and it, it's true of a middle-class Brit getting a solar roof for the first time um, in our country, and it's true of African families getting a solar lantern instead of a kerosene lantern for the first time in Africa and realizing that, you know, they've pretty instantly freed up 40% of their family income to spend on other stuff simply on savings against the price of kerosene. So all that kind of hope-laden stuff is very important to me. And, of course, on the policy front, we have our victories as well. We don't just get frustrated and have setbacks. I mean, the carbon tracker is 
is a joy to watch the way that is causing discomfort and anguish to the to the incumbency and you know it's sometimes difficult not to be um vindictive in enjoying that discomfort when um when big energy companies are confronted with the source of their capital simply being withdrawn from them i like seeing the looks on their faces <laughs> and your, the, the the book you did before was was called the carbon war does this does this feel like a war to you as well yeah, absolutely it's a civil war like all civil wars it's complex and there are people with opposing belief systems operating under the same roof all the time so that's been the case with every civil war in history probably but uh, here you see it very clearly. There are people in the same energy companies who have radically different views of the future. There are people in the same political parties, um, including the conservatives, who have uh, radically different views of the future. It's not a black and white thing, but a civil war it is. And make no mistake, the, it, the threatened incumbency, as they see and smell the ultimate demise of their belief system, ever more clearly, are fighting, as in many wars, the most bitter and horrid fighting is done towards the end of the war. You saw that with the Second World War in particular. Um, the same thing is happening in the energy civil war right now.